Let us turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. And if you have a pew Bible, you can find that on page 942. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word and hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they, will, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. We continue on with our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. And as we begin, I have three points for us. It is declaration, exhortation, and explanation. Declaration, exhortation, and explanation. So first, the declaration is from the first chunk of verses we have. It was a quote from 7 to 11. And what is the declaration? The author of Hebrews quotes this section actually from Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11. Interestingly enough, they're both the same verse numbers. So here, Hebrews 3, verse 7 to 11 is also a quote from Psalm 95, from 7 to 11. But before the quotation, he says the word, therefore. This quote is from Psalm 95, and it's correlated to the passage before, namely the verse before. And the verse before, the author was talking about salvation. Salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ, therefore. That's how it should read. Again, he quotes from Psalm 95. He doesn't say it's from the Psalms. He doesn't even say the author's name. He says that this is what the Holy Spirit says. This, once again, pointing to the ultimate authorship of the Scriptures to God. This is a point that you may have heard me harp on again and again. But this is the very point that many people, including some who would call themselves Christians, try to deny and there's a reason for that. There's something in the scriptures that perhaps they don't like. It just doesn't make sense. If it doesn't make sense, therefore, it cannot be true. Hence, the Bible 
then cannot be the written word of God. The arguments against the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible range from sophisticated, meaning those that perhaps argue from manuscript variances, to now social contemporary readings into the text. And I don't necessarily put those in the category of sophisticated arguments. You hear them from people like TikTok theologians and so on. They will say things like, well, this word doesn't mean this in this context. But what it's really saying, if you listen to this person giving their theology on TikTok, it's really giving a pass to the things that God has said is detestable in his sight, abhorrent even. And they are almost always, always, for some reason, sexual sin. Modern-day theologians will jump through all sorts of hoops to perform some crazy tricks to try and make the Bible say something that it has never said. They'll say things like, quote, Yes, I know this sin was considered bad, but we know better now. Trust me, I have a PhD, unquote. But there is an incredibly high view of Scripture that we are shown in the book of Hebrews. So much so that many liberal scholars actually hate this particular book because the author again rightly shows how all of Scripture was inspired by God. The ultimate author is God. And it is the revelation of God to man about who he is that we read. So when we read these verses, we read them as God's declaration to his people. So what is in Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11? This passage was used actually liturgically as a preamble to synagogue services on Friday evening and Sabbath morning historically. And so what that means is before they would start their Friday or evening services or Sabbath morning services, the Jewish people would read this passage Psalm 95, 7 through 11. And it's referring to Numbers 14 and Numbers 20. It's in Kadesh the Israelites would continue to disobey and rebel against God. This was after God saved them from Egypt, saved them from not just a life, but their entire, entire lineage of slavery. God would save them but this redemption will be forgotten. It no longer impelled or drove them to obedience. They no longer bore fruit in keeping with repentance. See, in Numbers 14, the people were at the precipice of the promised land. That means they were so close. They basically had to cross the street. The spies that they would send out would come back and give them a bad report. They would say things like, we are like grasshoppers to these giants. They would crush us like grasshoppers. There are massive people living there. And when the spies came back and gave them that report, the people not only lost any nerve that they would have to go into the land that God had promised, they started to actually complain. This is Numbers 14, 2-4. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, 
Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, if you're listening to this, and it seems very reminiscent of the people in time now, perhaps it's because people are, in nature, rebellious. But the Lord would continue the, con- consider this a rebellion against Him. And Psalm 95 is a reflection of this. And He says this, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Imagine seeing God's provision, His protection, his providence for 40 years, 40 years of his grace and blessings. And what did the people do? They revolted against God. They didn't remember what he did in the past. And they were afraid, they were angry, and they were resentful. What he had done in the past was forgotten. And they were left afraid, angry, and resentful in the present. Today, And it continues on in verse 10. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Again, this is reminiscent of Numbers 14, this time from verses 21 to 23. But truly as I live, this is the Lord speaking, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despised me shall see it. So here's what's important to know. In verses 1 through 6, we saw the good news. It's magnificent. The salvation of Christ is incredible. Here, from these verses and on, we see the bad news. And the scriptures are consistent when showing the good news, there is bad news. Jesus would give us the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, he would say. But he's the one that also gave us the woes. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. You see, you hear and you have heard the good news of Jesus Christ, the salvation that we have in Christ. You've joined the membership of the church, and that's the group of people that the author of Hebrews is writing to. These are the people that are familiar with the Word of God. They have joined the church. There's a solemn warning to those people. Attached to the good news, there's something we ought to be very mindful of as well, because What did the Lord do to those who rebelled against him after he had redeemed them from Egypt? I'm going to continue on with Numbers 14. And it says from verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? 
I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. Now, if you listen to this, you see that there is a prominent, amazing, exquisite pronouncement of salvation. But there's also judgment. And I hope that this logic doesn't escape us either. If 2 plus 2 equals 4, then any other answer that's not 4 or equal to 4 is wrong. God makes this oath, this time the other way where he swears that those that rebel against him will never enter his rest. So you might be thinking now, okay, I see that this is just the flip side of the same coin. Where there's good news, there's bad news. If there's a right answer, there's a wrong answer. Those are things that I get. Okay. But then how do I know? How do I know if in fact I am going astray? How do you know that you are rebelling against God? Because this is what God says. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So you go astray when you don't know God's ways when you don't know God's character, when you don't know his strength, when you don't know his law, which leads us to the second point. Exhortation. Now from verses 12 to 15, what do you now know, now that you've heard the good news and the bad news? The writer here gives us an exhortation that's supposed to answer exactly this question. How do I know I am not in rebellion? Because he ends the section with the quote of the beginning of the passage. So he started with verse 7 with this quote, and he ends verse 15 with this quote. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So now we understand what rebellion is. It's going against what God commands. It's going against his character. It's going against his word. It's rebelling against him. So how do you know that you're rebelling against him? So he starts off this exhortation in verse 12 by saying the words, take care, be careful. It's from one word in the Greek, which means to watch very carefully. And its tone is a very sharp warning. It's not be careful, it's be careful. It's a very serious warning. In verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This evil, unbelieving heart would have pointed back then to the psalm where God would say that they always go astray in their heart. So he's pointing back, saying this is related to this part. To go astray, then, is to turn away from the living God. There is also another word that's introduced here that's also used out to close out this passage in verse 19, and that's the word unbelieving. Unbelieving is used twice. Once to start this verse in verse 12 and to end this passage in verse 19. That word is apistia. 
apistia. If you've heard or if you've grown up in the church, maybe you heard some Greek words. Pistos is the word for faith, right? Apistia would sound like what it sounds like then. It means what it sounds like. It's a and then pistos, which means a, not pistos, faith. Unbelieving, not faith. It might sound then the people that rebel or the evil people that rebel, they have an absence of faith. Apistia. It's like when we put the letter A in front of a word like theist and make it atheist, many people think that it means that we don't believe in God because God doesn't exist to them. But A is a prefix you put in front of a word to mean not or without. For instance, if you call someone amoral, you mean him to be without morals or someone who is not moral. So atheists, by definition, aren't people that are not simply people who don't believe in God. Most atheists actually have many thoughts on God or the concept of God. Their claim is that he just doesn't exist unless you're more Nietzschean where you believe that you've killed God or you believe that the great clockmaker died or whatever way you want to put it. In this same way, apistia or apistia isn't the absence of belief. And this is important. This is why I'm laboring the point. It's not the absence of faith. It is the refusal of belief. Apistia isn't the absence of faith or belief. It is the refusal of belief. Notice how the Israelites weren't denying God's existence. But what they were doing is they were refusing to trust him. They were refusing to obey him. It's a deliberate act of rejection and willful rebellion. And it's important that we understand this language because we use it today as well. Perhaps not with the seriousness as we should, as this author would suggest. We say things like, oh, you know, how's your faith? I've kind of fallen away. I've kind of turned away. I've backslidden. But these words reflect the same disposition of the Israelites when the author says, fallen away, turned away. So when we say fall away, turn away, or backslide, it's apistia. And apistia is to be taken very seriously because there is a warning there to shake you up because the author is trying to tell you, you are in a dire situation. So what do we do then? What do we do then? Instead of falling away, the exhortation continues in verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort is from, it's very exciting, I know. Exhort is from the word parakaleo. Para means with, kaleo means call. It's what we also call the Holy Spirit. We call him the paraclete. That means call to be with us. He is our ultimate advocate, our ultimate comforter. But... Here is the command. We're to do that for each other. We're called to be there for one another. How do we keep from falling away? 
you are to exhort one another every day. Notice how it's not written, be exhorted every day. The author doesn't write, you have to be exhorted every day. But the author writes, exhort every day. Exhort one another every day. Now, people want to be exhorted because they need to be exhorted. They need to be encouraged. They need to be lifted up. But the mistake lies in the thinking that I come to church solely to be exhorted. Because here is the command not to be exhorted, but to exhort others. Coming to church to only be exhorted is a mistake. It's not following the commands of God if you only think this way. You come to church to stand alongside with the saints to encourage them, to comfort them, to admonish them, to correct them. All of this is to exhort them so that the saints do not fall away. And when we all do this for each other, each one with their gifts that the Lord has supplied them with, we get to witness this constant care and vigilance that we ought to share with one another to every single member of our church. You are called to exhort one another. But here's the real challenge. Some of you might be listening, oh, that makes sense. I'm not here to spectate. I'm here to serve. I've heard this in my church life. I'm not here to be exhorted, but I am here to exhort. I'm here to encourage others. I get that. But here's the real challenge. This needs to be done when? Every day. Every day, it says. That's how much we need to remind ourselves of Christ and to exhort one another to Christ. Not one day should go by where you are not exhorting the saints. Call, text, pray for, meet with, encourage someone in our church every single day. That's important. And if you don't know who you can do this to, you're like, who do I call? I'm just going to give you an example. Exhort Sam. He's here from 9 to 3, and he needs exhortation. This command to exhort one another every day, and, you know, you might think this is a joke, but there are literally people that you can exhort. There are people that need exhortation. When I say Sam needs it, he definitely does need it, but don't you also need it as well? It's that important. It's a command to exhort one another every day. It emphasizes the mutual responsibility that we should feel for every single member of our church. It's not just for the pastor or elder to go around exhorting and encouraging people. They are, and they will do that. But if you're just sitting around waiting to be encouraged, if you're sitting around just waiting to be exhorted, you are not fulfilling the mandate that the Scriptures give us. Get up, exhort, today. That leads us to the next word, today. As long as it is called today. This shows us how the word of God speaks to us day after day after day, even today. Psalm 95 isn't just for the past. It's for today is what the author is saying. Because today will eventually become and finally we will become the day, the parousia, where the Lord Jesus Christ will come a second time to gather the saints to himself, bringing in a new heaven, new earth. 
And it's a call back to Psalm 95 again, where he quotes, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The hardening of your hearts is rebellion, and it is sin. And we must fight against this every day. We must fight against sin every day as long as it is called today. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if we indeed, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now there is a theological question that many people pose. Even when I would go on mission trips, church, local church pastors would ask, like, do you believe you can lose your salvation? And depending on that answer, they would let us either go and do some work or not. Can you lose your salvation? Because as you're listening to this, you might be thinking, wow, it looks like my salvation is kind of hanging by a thread. We have to take it that seriously. It's a dire situation. Can you lose your salvation? I think that's an interesting question. First of all, we have gone through the concept of the elect. That means people that God chooses. That means we were dead in our trespasses, we couldn't function. We couldn't respond to anything. It's not like we got up from our dead bodies and we're like, I choose you, God, like we would choose a Pokemon or something to that effect. Can you pick God if you're dead? You cannot choose God. So by the word elect, what we mean is God would raise us up. Now we can function. Now we can respond. Now we can worship. Otherwise, we can't do it. So when we talk about the elect, we are talking about the monergistic salvation that we have received. That means it's solely by God's working that we can become alive. It's not like we have anything to do with us reviving back again. So anything that you start to see, that means God has healed your blindness. You start to hear, that means God has healed your deafness. You start to feel, your heart starts to understand. That means God has given you understanding. It's all from God. So when people ask, can you lose your salvation? It's an interesting question because can you lose something that God has given you? Meaning if God is the one, just like Jesus said, is the Father who draws the people, his people to himself. So if God draws you in by his power, can you lose it? I would contend that it was something that you never had if you lost it. 1 John 2 verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I think this is kind of like a negative reinforcement to the positive reinforcement of verse 14 here. And so this is talking about how we, now that we have received the salvation, we should understand the depth, the beauty, the majesty of who God is, and how precious this gift is. How precious it is. A lot of people might think that, you know what, salvation has nothing to do with me, it has everything to do with God, and you would just kick it down the road like you would kick an empty can. And I don't think you understand what salvation is. Salvation was bought, your salvation was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. God gave his son so that you might be saved. How precious is that salvation? How do you hold that salvation now? How do you adhere to the word of God now? Because when God saved you, he also gives you the promise of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, and he gives you the power more and more every day as you become sanctified, as you become more and more saved. That's what it means 
to follow what he says and commands to do. So if that's the case, the question, can you lose salvation, kind of seems like an infantile question. Because instead of worrying about losing your salvation, you should regard your salvation with that gravity, with the heaviness of it, with the beauty of it, with the preciousness of it. And so that's how we would work out our salvation. And even in Romans it says, with fear and trembling. And so, this is salvation that we have been given. And you know that someone has been saved because it says here, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, that means with repentance, fruit happens. That means if you are a repentant Christian, fruit starts to be born. You start to bear fruit. And that's how you know someone has been saved. It's not the fruit that saves you, but fruit comes from salvation. I think that's the key difference because when you mix it, when you flip it, that's when you know your gospel or your understanding of the gospel has been corrupt because when you flip it, it becomes about you. It's about what I did. Look at my faith. Look at my faith. It's amazing. Instead of saying, look at Jesus Christ and look what he did for me. Look at Jesus Christ and look what he did for me. And now, because I recognize it, my life is his. And you're wondering, man, some, sometimes sin is rough. Sin's tough. I don't even want to believe it. You know, if I follow this, if I follow the Bible to the T, and I got this understanding, I will be rejected. I will, may even be persecuted, but I will definitely suffer. You know what? Can I just stay quiet? And some of the questions were asked to the podcast. What happens when someone asks you directly to your face, do you believe and they have an agenda that is not Christian? How do you respond? What if you get fired? Don't you need to feed your kids? You have a family. How do you do this life here in 2023? And those are really, really important questions that we need answering too. So how does that happen? And so here, it says that we must hold on to the confidence, even if it would cost us our life. And this is what we see. Is our history, this is our heritage, the people that came before us, this is why the church still exists, spilled their blood generation after generation because with every generation, they wanted to go against God, and they were willing to draw blood for it. Now for our final point. This is our shortest point. It's called the explanation. I call it the explanation because it's more like a further explanation. He asks three questions hearkening back to Psalm 95. In verse 16, the first question, for the, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? And he qualifies it. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? It's hearkening back to Psalm 95, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The second question, verse 17. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Verse 10. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. The third question, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were 
disobedient. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what are these three questions reiterating? reiterating excuse me. Well, verse 16, they rebelled against God. Verse 17, they sinned against God. Verse 18, they refused to obey God. You heard the word, you understand the word, you don't want to do it. Therefore, the anger of God is upon them. That is a very just response because our God is a just God. And here we end with verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Here's the word apostia again. This is a call to preserving faithfulness, preserving discipleship. We, just like the Israelites in Kadesh, stand in this moment. We stand in today. We stand between redemption and rest. We stand between promise and fulfillment. We stand, it's a street away, to the promised land. And the warning is given to us by showing us the tragedy of the previous generation that came before us. They were so close to the promised land, but they were not able to obtain it. It's a tragedy that we are to understand so that we can then exhort one another to not give up, to not fail. We can encourage one another. We can correct one another. We can push each other to Christ because today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Because the warning to the people of the writer's day is clear. If you slip back from your Christian profession into apostia, into unbelief, the result is fatal. That's the warning. So on the flip side of life, where we have life eternal in Christ, there is death in unbelief, death in rebellion against God. The warning is given because the author loves us, because God loves us. This is a very, when people read this passage in its entirety, the commentators say this is a very pastoral passage because that's what you do. And this is why it starts with this warning and ends with this warning with the exhortation in the middle because that's what you would do if you were a loving parent as well. You would say, hey, you can't touch the stove because if you touch it while it's hot, you're going to burn yourself. So here's what you do. When you see this and it's on the on position, don't go near it. There's the exhortation. And then what a parent would do normally would be, so therefore, don't touch the stove when it's on. See, that warning is there in the beginning. The warning is there at the end. The exhortation is in the middle. It's very basic. It's very common. And I hope it doesn't escape you. The warning is there. Salvation is in Jesus Christ, but outside of Christ, there is death. There is decay. There is a de-creation. And we see this, we witness this when we look at the world today. So there is the exhortation. Every day you go exhort the saints. In whatever way you can, you encourage them, you correct them, you stand alongside them because it's that important, the salvation that you received. And finally, the warning is given one last time. Be careful then. Don't take this salvation lightly. Don't reject God because there's death. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that even in your word, there are words of affirmation that we need, words of truth in salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. But there is also warning for us to not take this salvation lightly, not to look down on the living God, to even dare take away his glory so that we would boast in ourselves for whatever reason. And so now help us with this warning to understand what it means for the need to be exhorted, but also to command to exhort the saints every day as long as it is called today. Now let's take this time to reflect and as the word, as the scriptures exhort us to, let's ask the Holy Spirit to do work in our hearts. If there is an area in your heart that is rebellious toward God, repent, turn back to him. Submit to God as he is the one that gives us salvation and him alone. Let's pray.